Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, a show about difference and conversations and conversations about difference. Sometimes the conversations are awkward. This week, they're not, in part because I know the guests pretty well. In fact, one of the guests I've known my entire life, that would be my dad, Sam Cox. He's on because I wanted to talk to Claire Kane Miller a writer for the New York Times about raising a feminist son and a feminist daughter, for that matter. And I thought my dad would be a good expert on the subject, quite frankly. Um, Not only did he raise me a feminist, but he's one of the strongest feminists I know. And he was raised at a time when, suffice to say, that wasn't a thing. But our first guest is Anil Dash. I've known Anil not quite for my entire life, but maybe for all of my online life. He has been blogging and uh, active participant on social media since before really there was such a thing. In fact, he worked at Movable Type, which is one of the companies that basically invented blogging. They, they definitely invented the software that people use for blogging. And I wanted to talk to him about a few things. And in fact, we recorded a whole 30 minutes of conversation that has to do with uh, blogging and commenting and toxicity online before we got to a subject that I didn't think that we would talk about, quite frankly, but it became, well, it's what I'm going to feature in the show. It's a conversation about Anil's choice to not retweet men because he is a longtime user of Twitter, kind of like me, uh, Anil has a lot of followers, more followers than a non-really famous person should have. He has 600,000 followers, to be precise. And he's just put a lot of thought into how to use that platform. And like I said, one of the things he does is not retweet men. What I really want to note before you hear the interview, though, is that when I brought the subject up with him, what I said was, you only retweet women. And he did not correct me, but he noted that when he started this project, he had said something similar and had to have his eyes open to the fact that, you know, we live in a non-binary gender world. Some people aren't gender binary. Um, Some people are trans. Uh, That women was perhaps not the best description of the kinds of people he wanted to elevate in conversation. And I 
you know, caught myself too after he pointed it out. And I just want to say, like, I almost cut that part of the conversation because I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed that a woke person such as myself, you know, one of the good white people and one of the good cis straight people maybe uh, had gotten that wrong. And quite frankly, even after I corrected myself, my excuse for getting it wrong was kind of bullshit. You'll hear it. I say I got it wrong because I'm old. That's not an excuse and I'm not really that old. I should have got it right the first time, but I didn't. And I'm leaving it in because I guess a lot of us don't get things right the first time, especially when we're trying to be sensitive about gender and sexuality and race and where people come from and what people care about. We are not used to maybe having to be sensitive, especially if you're a person with a lot of privilege. So maybe the first few times out of the gate, maybe multiple times out of the gate, you're not going to say the right thing. And it's not okay, really, but it's just going to happen. And I think we have to be okay with it happening, if that makes sense. This is a really long intro, but it's been a really uh, big week to think about language, hasn't it? I'll have some more thoughts about that at the end of the show. For now, Anil Dash, he is the CEO of Fog Creek Software and an old, old friend of mine. Welcome to the show, Anil. Thank you. You stand out to me as someone who really lives your values in public. And one of the ways is through the way that you use your Twitter feed. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I... uh, um... I waste a lot of my life on Twitter and I have since the day it launched and, um, you know, broadly I, I've been blogging for 18 years. So like, you know, all of my adult life basically. And, um, I, I realized that, you know, five or 10 years in, Oh, I was going to be doing this the rest of my life being on social media. And especially I've got a six year old son now. So since he was born, I really think about you know, mostly he's going to think dad is pretty boring because that's what kids do. But at some point he might like take a look at some of this stuff. And am I going to be proud of what he sees? And am I going to stand behind what I wrote? And some of it is like, if I, whatever, I reviewed windows 98 when it came out, nobody cares. Like that, that doesn't, you know, <laughs> like that's not, that's not so pertinent, but, um, you know, some of the, the more substantive, substantive things that I've said, I, I sort of, really think deeply about, well, I'd be proud of the, the words that I share. And then I also think like, I'm very lucky to have a fairly large platform considering I'm just some guy that like works at a software company. And a lot of that's just because I've been around a long time. You, you get these sort of legacy accruals of, um, social media influence, uh, just by showing up early. And uh, people always and ask so, me so, about how I have got 1.3 million followers and it's like, yeah, there's no science to it. Always there early. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I tell people. And then they're like, you know, what's your tip for social media? I'm like, show up 15 years ago. Like, I don't, <laughs> it's, not, it's not super helpful, but that would be my num- number one hot tip. Yeah. Um, and, uh, or 20, whatever. Yeah. And if you had a time machine, there's probably better uses for it than going yeah, back yeah, yeah, yeah. and joining but, Twitter. Uh, but, you know, it's, yeah, if that's your yeah. goal, go ahead. If you have the ability to go back in time 10 years, like, yeah, don't waste it on Twitter. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, you, 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 you get this platform and, and then I think, well, it's arbitrary that I have it. 
And so how do I use it well? And how do I sort of burn some of this goodwill since I can afford to on things that are meaningful? And especially, you know, I've been in tech for 20 years or something, and we are still woefully behind in reckoning with our role in advancing, you know, social justice. And so given all that's the case, what I try to do is at least, you know, half the time when I'm not goofing off to use the platform I have to be advancing and promoting ideas that are substantive and to amplify the voices of people who don't have the platform that I do, but should. And, and so that's something that, um, it just makes it more satisfying for me because otherwise all the grief I get online would never be worth enduring. But I want to talk about the very specific thing you did, which you didn't bring up, which is that for, was it, is it over now that you only retweet women or are you still? Oh, I've been doing it for four or five years. I actually, I didn't write about it until, uh, I had been doing it a year because I sort of wanted to. Is that to... still, you only, do you only retweet women? Yeah. Yeah. I love well, that. I used, I used to retweet women and Prince. Oh yeah. Uh, and, then, and then he passed <laughs> away. But he said, I'm not a woman. I'm not a man. I'm something that you'll never understand. So I took him at face value and I said, okay, you go into the we, category. We, everybody needs an exception to the rule, right? So fine. Yeah, Prince was yeah. your exception. But this is, right. I mean, I think people put, I think when I first heard about it, I I love the idea, but you, you inspired me to try and think about doing it. And it's actually, I'm not going to say it's hard, right? Because it's doable. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not hard. <laughs> it's totally doable, but yeah. it makes you think about every yeah. retweet that you do. Yeah. Well, that. That was the thing I realized that made it easy for me is I was already doing that. Mm. Um, I was always very mindful of like, you know, because what part of it is I didn't want to retweet somebody who like is, you know, know, like I said, they go out there and they're like, boy, this is a really yummy cheeseburger. And I'm like, okay, I agree with that. And I'm going to share that. And then you read the rest of their stream and they're like, we should kick puppies. You're like, damn it. Oh, man. that's Pepe forever. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, oh, man, I didn't mean to promote that guy, the puppy kicker. And, and so like you, you, you start to have this sense of like, you don't want to be part of, uh, giving a platform to awful people, even though everybody else in the rest of media seems obsessed with doing that right now. And, um, and so that was sort of part of it was, I was already putting the thought in and it's just, how do I apply a rubric to it? And, and actually when I wrote about it, what I wrote was, uh, um, I didn't retweet men. And part of what I had learned in the first year of doing so was this, like, I hadn't reckoned with my lack of fluency and literacy around, mm. um, uh, transgendered and non-binary people and people of other sort of gender identities. And so I'd had this like, you know, not men, that means women. And I, like, that was a very, um, challenging and ugly thing to confront myself is that I had like sort of, Oh, I think the right things, but I hadn't really thought about it enough. And even with having worked with, um, people that had transitioned while I was working with them and all these, you know, sort of, I'd been around it, been exposed to it, sort of had the right political position, but hadn't interrogated my own behaviors. Mm. And that was really something that was very instructive. And, um, and also I was incredibly blessed, like a lot of, um, people who didn't identify, uh, as women took the time to educate me. Uh, and which they didn't have to do, you know, which is very generous. And so I got to sort of get up to speed and, and learn more thoughtful ways to communicate and also amplify their voices. And so like, this was a really powerful thing that like would not have happened if I hadn't been articulating what my, what I was trying to do better. And, and you, you and, caught me on that too. And it's true. Like I, I also have these people in my life and also think of myself as fairly woke on the whole, there is this 
spectrum and not everyone's gender binary. But it is just super easy. Like, I mean, I'm going to say part of it is I'm old, but um, it is we don't you once you put your values out there in public. Right. Once you wrote about this, like it part of the experience is to then be called on. Yeah. And I say this as a geek, as it felt very much like open source software. And, <laughs> and, I'll, give you, and I'll give you one 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 reason this analogy is not as tortured as it seems, which okay. is um, a lot of programmers, even the best programmers in the world, some of the people I've had the chance to meet working in, like I build tools for programmers. So like I get to meet great coders, even though I'm not one. And a lot of them will tell me, you know, and open source is this process where you make a, a program, you make software, and the instructions, the code that actually makes it, you share with the world in addition to the app itself. And the theory behind doing it is people will find the bugs or, or shortcomings in it and improve them, or they will add their own features and improve it for you. And so like, it's this very collaborative thing. But these great programmers, all, all like across the board, 100% of them say, first time I put something out as open source, I was very nervous because people could see you know, the bugs that I had in my software or the errors or better ways to do the things I did. And it's this very vulnerable place. So it's like part one. And that I think everybody understands. It's sort of, you know, variations on imposter syndrome and, and vulnerability and visibility and all these ideas that I think people are pretty fluent in in culture. The other part, and this was especially true for the, the coders who were men, was um, this sort of indignation of, you know, to put work out as open source is actually this very generous thing because you're taking your work and essentially mm-hmm. communalizing it. You're making it part of something for a community and, and sharing it. And it's this, it's an act of generosity. And oftentimes it requires people to have to have fought their organization like their employer that they work for for the right to do it. So they go through this entire battle of why we should open source this in the first place and why is it even worth it to go through all this hassle. They do all that. They make themselves vulnerable. but They put the code out. And the first thing they get back is a whole bunch of strangers saying, here's the way what you made is crappy. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> and they just tear it apart. And that is actually like that's the thing you're opening yourself up to. And if you're not emotionally ready for that. Uh, you, you just be like, why the hell did I do all this work? I could have just kept it behind closed doors and you ingrates would have never pointed out all the terrible things I did. And, and when I started to try to document my values, I had that same defensiveness Uh that I would have had around open sourcing my code, which was, I went and said, you know, and part of it is like it as a, like as a straight male in tech, like I can get my like ally cookies for nothing. I can just be like, I'm not actively horrible right now. People are like, oh, look at him. He's a good guy. <laughs> like, I, literally, I didn't kick a puppy on the way to work. And they're like, woo, he's a great tech CEO. Right. The bar is that low. And so, you know, I, I don't, I try not, I try not to intentionally do that, but you just sort of, by my personality, because I'm a like moderately public person, you know, when you write about, okay, here's the reason that I'm doing this because this is the values I'm trying to lead you also, you get, you get praised for it. You know, like I said, especially as a male where it's like, if you're a man and you do these basic things, people are like, wow, he's trying. And in amidst that praise for somebody to be like, well, you screwed this up. You didn't think enough about the way people identify and present gender in society. And so you weren't very thoughtful and nuanced in this and, um, you can do better to not be defensive and to be thankful for somebody taking the time to educate you took me a long, long time to learn, like way too long. And, and that's the thing I feel like is the, is the sort of next process is like to say you have the right values is actually pretty easy. 
especially these days, there's a big infrastructure around patting you on the back for it. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to actually do the hard work of here's how I've screwed up and let me make myself like, let me double down on being vulnerable and point out even when I said I was going to try and do better, it only exposed the other things that I have to fix and that I'm, I'm only ever honing away all these flaws. That's something that, um, it took a really long time for my mind to shift. Now I sort of enjoy it almost. There's like perverse, this like, like, let me find the bugs in the same way that I, I, I love open source software, which is this, like we together are going to make something better than we, any of us could have made alone. I actually got, had a very similar thing happen to me this week. I, I participated in a crypt the vote chat on Twitter, which was mm-hmm. great. And even just doing that was educational for me. There was like a discussion about using the I am a pre-existing condition uh, avatar, which I do have as my avatar. Mm-hmm. And some people who were are more visibly disabled felt like people who don't have, you know, visible disabilities or who are claiming disability through more subtle means like I'm have a mental, you know, disability. Like mm-hmm. maybe shouldn't be doing that. And I, all of a sudden I was like, oh, wait, oh, my God. It's complicated. And, yeah. And the, but yeah. then there was like other and there's other people saying, no, I think it's fine. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe there's not actually a right answer here. Shit. Yeah. Like yeah. maybe I definitely have me that. as a is a is a somewhat privileged person. I don't get to have I, I'm so used to being able to say that there's a right answer and that's the way I'm doing it. Maybe there's not mm-hmm. actually a right answer here. I had that with like the um, assuming good intent. Like I was always like, oh, you got to, you know, you should be charitable to people, assume good intent. And so I'll try things and, and, and talk about things that I'm still learning about and, and be like, well, people should assume good intent. And, you know, then I'm like coming from the perspective of people on the margins that they see a <laughs> tech CEO yeah. who's allowed, who lives in Manhattan and, and is like buddy, buddy with media people on Twitter talking about some issue. Why would they assume good intent? That's right. They have every reason not to. And so to, again, to like not, you know, to not be like, well, how dare you not know that I know things are, you know, that I'm on the side of good and justice. It's like, why would you assume so? Like, there's no reason to indicate that. Don't you know I'm down with your struggle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're listening to With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. You heard me talk last week about Upside.com. This week, I actually used upside.com. I am going to Washington, D.C. in a couple weeks. No live show, sorry to say, but um, I will keep you updated on my guests for that week, looking into some like very D.C.-ish people. Anyway, I needed to go to D.C., so I used Upside, and I plugged in at the times I needed to go, the class of fare that I wanted to take, and In less than a minute, I would say I got a bunch of choices on United and American Airlines and a bunch of hotels to stay at. It saved me almost $100 and I got a $100 gift certificate. Also on top of that, they showed me other options. Once I said what I wanted to do, they showed me other options that might have been cheaper because of the time of day or maybe a hotel down the street. Um, never really seen a site that worked quite this way. Um, it's like having a travel agent, but one that really shows you the true cost of things, which not all travel agents do. And so, you know, you guys try it. 
It is perfect for business travel. It's probably perfect for other kinds of travel too. Um, it definitely made this trip easy for me. And if you use promo code FRIENDS, you are guaranteed to get yourself a $100 Amazon gift card on your first trip. That's FRIENDS as a promo code, and you get a $100 gift card. You can save big and get a big gift card on every trip. Upside.com. That's Upside.com. Offer code FRIENDS for a free $100 Amazon gift card. There is a minimum purchase required. See site for complete details. Another thing happened yesterday that I had a really actually surprisingly like emotional response to, which is that I called I called Trump an idiot. And someone from the crypto vote mm-hmm. chat was like, yeah. hey, you know, and they were yeah. so nice about it. But I was just like, I was so pissed and not at this person, kind of yeah. at myself, but yeah. also just having to remember, like, I put myself out there to be called on this. Yeah. One of those things that's fun for me now is realizing, like, I'm a middle-aged dad and I am going to be the fogey who's like, well, things are changing too quick these days, you know, and, <laughs> and, and, and to, to resist that impulse and to, to not sort of dismiss or poo-poo the, like the sort of the, the most recent concern. And I haven't had, like, I haven't had that sense of like, this one's not legit yet, but I, I it's like, it's almost inevitable, right? Like I, I that yeah. you don't get to, you know, be a grandfather and be like, wow, I'm really down with all these changes in society that are new to me. And I'm, really excited about all of them like that like <laughs> people don't work that way most of the time and also like and like i hope to be but like i can't guarantee i'm going to be so i'm going to have to practice it like what also like wokeness or whatever is not like a state it's not like a steady yeah, state yeah it's a process it's right? a process and, yeah and not only is it a process it's this sort of ongoing thing that gets i i keep I, i'm i actually was starting to write about this and i haven't finished this piece i want to write but the um staying culturally relevant today requires a broader set of cultural fluencies than it ever used to. Mm. And we see this, it's almost like people in positions of power who have a platform see it like a tax, like it's something that they have to do that they don't want to have voices upon them. And interestingly to me, the most regressive, resistant, reluctant cohort I see reacting to this are comedians. So when what I see across the board, and I think you've seen this at like current, like you look at the current act by Louis C.K., Chris Rock, whatever. They're doing this like very oddly regressive, weird pushback against like, what's next? What's the next thing they're going to say? I can't say I'm I'm fighting for free speech. And what it is, is they don't want to have to get fluent in the, the conversation we just talked about. So if you talk about like they'll do the everybody's doing these hacky jokes about like, well, I'm X, but I identify as Y. Right. And they're all sort of playing on gender fluidity and these new presentations of gender that are coming to the fore in culture right now. And, you know, and they'll do these sort of really weak uh, Caitlyn Jenner jokes. Right. And 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 all of that is this pushback on they don't want to have to learn. They don't want to have to be fluent in a whole new vocabulary about things that they were literate in. They don't want to confront their own ignorance in, in a whole big, broad space, which admittedly is complex and has a lot of aspects to it and doesn't have one clear right answer about things. And so rather than engage with the hard work of learning that whole spectrum of conversation, they reject the entire conversation outright because it would make doing their job, which is telling jokes, that much harder and they don't want to do it. And and that's something that's interesting to me because we see that in 
you know, CEOs that do that. Certainly we see that in comedians, but there's these people who are like, I want to be prominent in culture and I want to play with culture and society and, and be relevant, but I don't want to pay the price of having to actually be fluent in all the new things that are happening in culture. Yeah, I, I don't want to name names on this, but like, let me just give a pro tip. Like if you're being cited um, favorably by Glenn Beck for your comedy routine, then you should probably yeah, be concerned. Yeah. You should maybe take yeah, a look but, at what you're saying. But there's, but I even look at like um, how many politicians we think of as being, you know, nominally on the left got their responses wrong on Black Lives Matter. Well, right. And I mean, their initial responses. Yeah. And and what they what it was was they weren't fluent in what it meant. So they would do this like, yes, Black Lives Matter and all lives matter. <laughs> and then people would be like, oh, you know, you oh, God damn it. Why? You know, why did you why did you have to go and screw it up? And what they realized, what it was is they just weren't paying attention. They weren't fluent in the conversation that was happening and what the signifiers meant and what their response meant. Like a lot of them sort of walked it back and tried to clean it up afterwards, right? They were right. like, I didn't know that saying all lives matter was refuting black lives matter and that was bad because of this. And like there's this whole thing that like I think a lot of us spend time online are sort of versed in all this. But the people who don't weren't. And even if they meant well or whatever, uh, they – they resented having to be literate in this whole domain of concerns that uh, they wanted to have the assumption of goodwill around. Yeah. And, and, and it's like, no, you don't get to have that. You don't get to just have people say you're one of the good ones if you haven't done this work. And that is happening across politics, across culture, across media, and starting to happen in tech in the world that I'm in and every single one of the people in power resents having to do that work. And I'm like, well, get ready because it's going to get to be more before it's less. And I have two things to point out about that. One is which is that weirdly Glenn Beck actually came around on Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. <laughs> in this tribe. Yeah. Or well, he did this. He did the metaphor that I'm sure like only Glenn Beck could have come up with, which is that all pie matters. I don't know if you've seen the video clip. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's 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 uh, awkward. Perhaps, but like he sort of got the point in, in this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the intellectual framing of it, he got. I think you know. There's also the like you can understand that intellectually, but until you reckon with the fundamental inequities in policing, right. like you, he's still you, not he's still not sense. down with the struggle. But he just got the yeah. metaphor right, which is that if I if you, if I, then for quickly for people, it's that if his his breakthrough was realizing that if everyone at the table has pie, but you don't. And you just keep saying all pie matters. The person without the pie is like, but I have no pie. But then he does this weird thing where he just says over and over all pie matters. And it's really funny. So I highly recommend the clip. And the other thing I wanted to say is this reminds me of something that came up very early episode of the show, the show I did with Ira Madison, the third, Mm -hmm. which was that about having people of color as friends and how white people need Mm -hmm. to be okay with making mistakes in those relationships saying things that are not i mean when i say be have being okay with doing that they need to go ahead and have those friends with the knowledge that they will make mistakes you know they will yeah, say things yeah. that are insensitive because that's just it's part of being human it's part of being white well, the, like, yeah there's also that thing where like if if it's somebody i care about and i love i have a lot more patience to explain why what they said was messed up right you know and and the like you know, I, whatever. I mean, people I've been friends with my whole life that still will do the like, you know, bad Indian jokes or the mm-hmm. like, the the little like, you know, fake accent stuff. And I just feel like, you know, you know, it doesn't mean I don't love you, but 
here's the reason I'm not going to laugh at that. And probably nobody, you know, who's, who's South Asian is going to laugh at that and just sort of walk them through it. And like, if I, we had it for relationship, I'll explain that if somebody, and but people come at me with that, like as strangers online and I'm like, you're going to get blasted. Like, I mean, like, no, I don't have any patience for this because <laughs> I don't have to. And part and like, part of it too, is for me, it's, it's a very deliberate political thing of trying to know my power. Right. If we do say I have a position of a platform of privilege where I am a like I said, I work in tech and I'm a you know, I have the position and title of a CEO and all these other things. Um, I, I want to sort of own that and say, like, if you come at me with some, you know, Apu, like I'm not I'm not indulging it. Like I'm not I'm not going to be like I'm going to try and instruct you and blah, blah, blah. Like you're going to get both barrels and you're going to get blocked because I don't ha- I don't have to put up with it. I don't have the time to put up with it. And I don't mind making an example out of you. Mm. And like to be, that was a recent thing for me to sort of be that secure in where I stand. Um, but also it was a matter of really what feels these days like survival. Like I think for my emotional well-being, and also in a time when, you know, Indian American people are being killed in the street by white supremacists, like to be that indulgent of people, you know, that are being deliberately ignorant. So certainly uh, I'm not uh, I'm not inclined to do anymore. What I mean about the friends and being OK with being wrong or being OK with making mistakes around sensitive issues is that I do think that some for, for some white people, they perhaps subconsciously resist like intimate friendships with people of color, or people who are in vulnerable communities because they're afraid that they're going to say something wrong. That's interesting. I mean, I think that's true. I think I have less of that because for the most part. Uh, white people who haven't really interrogated race in America try to see Indian American people as being white. Um, and, and in fact, we'll, we'll, I, I've had people object when I talk about being a person of color, I've had white people object and be like, well, you're not really a person of color. Like you're just Indian. <laughs> you know? Um, and, and like, I, I literally can't even count the number of times I've had that. Cause they're like, well, you know, well, well, black people are really people of color, but like, you're not. And, and, you know, it's this sort of like, I'm like, listen, if, if the white supremacists are coming for us, like we count. Um, and, and so there's this interesting thing where like, and also it's sort of, this was more true when I was growing up, I grew up in a, um, overwhelmingly white area in rural Pennsylvania. The, um, the granting of whiteness was, it was something I was supposed to greet graciously. Like I, it was a gift I was given. It's like, well, you know. You, we don't count you. You're okay. You're one of us. And I'm like, it's not something I aspire to. Like, I'm very happy to be me. <laughs> and, and so, so that was, that was always something where as a, you know, as a kid, I didn't have a vocabulary for it. Um, and I would see people using sort of like racial slurs for other groups and they'd be like, you know, you're okay with that. Right. And be like, no, like that just reveals to me what you say when I'm not in the room. Like it was a very, um, clarifying education at a very young age. Well, you've given me a way to end the conversation because we're going to usher you out of the room, but I promise not to talk about you. Um, I appreciate that. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us, Daniel. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me on. You're listening to With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. Ring's mission is to make neighborhoods safer. Today, over a million people are using the amazing Ring video doorbell to help protect their homes. Ring knows that home security begins at the front door, but it doesn't end there. So now they're extending that same level of security to the rest of your home with the Ring Floodlight Cam. Just like Ring's amazing doorbell, the Floodlight Cam is a motion-activated camera 
and a floodlight that connects right to your phone with HD video and two-way audio that lets you know the moment anyone steps on your property and illuminates them, obviously. See and speak to visitors, even set off the alarm right from your phone. And with the floodlight cam, when things go bump in the night, you will immediately know what it is. Whether you're away from home or not, the Ring floodlight cam lets you keep an eye on your home from anywhere. Ring floodlight offers the ultimate in-home security with high visibility floodlights and a powerful HD camera that puts security in your hands. With Ring, you are always home. Save up to $150 off of a Ring security kit when you go to ring.com slash friends. Again, that's ring.com slash friends for $150 off a Ring security kit. Ring.com slash friends. So welcome to the show, both of you. I'm talking to Claire Kane Miller, who is a writer for The Upshot at The New York Times, who covers gender and the future of work. And also on the line is my dad, Sam Cox. Hi, Dad. Hello. And we're going to talk about a piece that Claire wrote a couple weeks ago now, uh, but it, it caused a minor stir online, um, where was the only only place things cause stirs today anyway, uh, about feminists and raising a feminist. And Claire, you sort of went off of a new book about raising a feminist daughter, but you decided to talk about and, and look into raising a feminist son. Do you want to kind of give an overview of what that turned up for you? Yeah. So I read the book um, by Shimamanda Adichie. I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. See, I just decided to skip the, skip the name it, uh, totally. Right. <laughs> so, but thank you for giving it a shot. Go ahead. Thanks. Uh, giving it a try. Um, and, you know, of course I agreed with all of it. It made perfect sense. Um, and the same way that when I see little baby girls wearing the future is female onesies, I'm like, yes, of course the future is female, but it's also male still. And, you know, part of what I, I just feel frustrated when there's so much focus on raising feminist girls, which is super important, but we are never going to succeed in that mission unless we raise feminist boys too. And what I mean by that is women's roles are never going to, um, you know, completely be free of constraints unless men change their roles too. Um, but the argument I made in the piece is it's not just doing it for women. It's also for men. You know, men are and boys are really raised now um, with a lot of constraints. We tell our girls they can do anything that they want to do. And boys are still supposed to be, you know, tough and play sports and be a breadwinner. And there's very few um, few liberties they have, you know, if they're interested in ballet or something like that. They're told it's girly and that's considered an insult. Um, and really, like in the economy, the jobs that are growing most and the work that is valued most in terms of pay and promotions are either caregiving jobs or, you know, jobs that require skills that we think of as feminine, like cooperation and flexibility. So this is really about, um, you know, the benefit of boys and men, too. And I wanted to have my dad on because I'm very curious about how he raised a feminist daughter, but also dad. Claire and I were chatting before you came on and and she realized like a question that we both have for you is how did you get to be a feminist? Because you were not raised. I I know a little bit about my grandparents and I'm looking at her, you know, um, article and I don't think they followed these guidelines when they raised you. Well, um, it's a good question. Um, I had an example of an older sister who was always pushing the boundaries 
there's things she wanted to do. She wanted to be a leader of her class when usually the boys were leaders, but she succeeded. She liked sports, you know, played varsity basketball. Lots of other girls did too, but it was just, uh, you know, she just had an array of talents and she was uh, forceful about exerting them. Um, she wanted to be equal in the family too. It wasn't uh, wasn't just in her social activities uh, that she competed with, with boys. Uh, so I don't know. I had an example growing up of um, you know a young woman that wanted to be everything. The, my parents um, they were uh, quiet politically be, because we. We grew up in the military and were taught that we, we weren't supposed to speak out about politics. But when my dad retired from the Army, it was clear that they were Democrats. And we, we were more or less raised as Democrats. We were um, not Southern Democrats. My parents were very pro-civil rights, and it's difficult to do in the 50s and 60s. Uh, they weren't uh, demonstrators, but they, I mean, at, at at home, they told us that, you know, that they supported civil rights, and we should, too. And Claire, does that kind of resonate with some of what you found? Sure, absolutely. That's a really interesting way to think about it, because a lot of the people that I talked to said, you know, it helps for boys to have little siblings, babies that they can take care of so that they learn that caregiving side of themselves, and that it helps for them to have, you know, strong female role models, either as parents or, you know, in their lives. Um, I hadn't thought of it exactly as having older sisters, but that makes perfect sense because that is that sort of um, strong female role model and also a demonstration, it sounds like, of doing a lot of things, of be, of playing a lot of roles, which teaches boys, yeah, yeah, we can play a lot of roles. I mean, one of the things people say is it's important for parents to share the work, like the work at home, the cooking and cleaning and all that, and also the breadwinning. Um, and, you know, not just to say that men and women have to follow these certain roles, but to actually show it, um, by, by doing it, actions speak louder than words with kids. And it sounds like you with your older sister saw a lot of that stuff. And I'm reminded of something that is true for the way that you raised me, dad, which is that politics was a topic always. Like, (laughs) you know, like some of my earliest memories are of talking about politics and sometimes arguing about it, you know, but that it was like a real thing that was um, not just okay to discuss, but that you could be passionate about. And I know that my grandfather were the same way, right? That's right. Well, the, the exception was while we were in the military, he didn't talk about it. Neither did my mother. All of their friends were voting Republican, <laughs> and I remember in those presidential races in the 50s, and he retired in late late 50s, but they didn't, but they didn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they, they didn't tell their friends, and they didn't campaign. They told us at home how they, what their feelings were, but they didn't make it public. But that it was okay to talk about it at home, to like talk about your values and to make yes. But it wasn't as a as a military man. Right. The rules were he he felt rules, and besides, he didn't agree with most of his friends on politics. So <laughs> he, he didn't talk about it with them. And where I want to think, wonder if this intersects with some of what you were talking about, Claire, is that um, talking about 
why you do what you do, about why you vote the way you vote or taking the actions that you're taking um, when it comes to, to, to politics and personal behavior is part of raising a feminist, too, I imagine. Yeah, I think so. It's a lot about um, and, and, you know, I think we should stop for one second and just say feminist has become a very loaded word. Yes. And it is a very <laughs> political word. And a lot of the feedback that I got on this story, people who were angry about it, they were not necessarily arguing with anything in the piece. They were arguing with the word feminist. The way I defined it is someone who believes in the full equality of men and women. I was not trying to make it more loaded or political than that, but I realized even that is a political statement. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a, it's just about being kind and, and being a compassionate human being in a lot of ways. And part of that is having values, like you said, and staying strong to that, staying strong about your values and speaking up when you see other people being intolerant or, you know, bullying someone and learning how to speak up about that. Um, and it's also about calling out for young children, the stereotypes that we have. And I think that's sort of what you're talking about. If you're talking about p- politics at the dinner table and why you believe certain things and why you have these values, then I think you're inherently talking about some of these stereotypes. And it's funny because when, during the campaign, I have um, two little boys and I thought, you know, just having them see Hillary Clinton running for president and having them watch her speeches that, you know, best if I never said that this was a rare thing, because then they would grow up just thinking, of course, women run for president. Why wouldn't they? And the social scientists that I interviewed said, no, that's wrong. Like they kids soak up the stereotypes from our culture completely, no matter what their parents say. And so they they very much understand that it doesn't fit with with the way things have been. And so the better approach is actually to call out those stereotypes and say, you know, this is the first time a woman has done this. Why do you think that is? Is that fair? Um, and and really talking about those issues. And it's interesting, you know, you bring up the word feminist, which is kind of loaded, because, of course, when my dad was growing up, like that word wasn't even really available. Like, right. Sure. No. <laughs> <laughs> So what what when, when did you figure out that you were a feminist? Um, I didn't. I, I don't know really. I, it kind of startled me when you first called me a feminist. <laughs> you totally are. You totally are. <laughs> well, I just want you to know that. Like, it's funny that you don't that you didn't realize it. But I can tell you. I can tell you why you're a feminist. Like, in part, it's because the way you raised me. Like, I would say to get into examples here, there are two stories I tell about how you showed me values that have led me to being the social justice warrior that I am today. Um, One of them um, is not about feminism, but about race, which is that I don't know if you remember this, but I remember coming home from school one day when we lived in Texas and asking you about the N-word because someone had used it. And you got really angry, which people don't know this, but my dad doesn't get angry very often. And you said, you explained it was a bad word. You explained why it was a bad word. And you told me not to use it. And then you said, and if anyone uses it in front of you, you tell somebody and you tell that person not to use it in front of you. Yeah, I kind of remember that. Yeah. Which, Claire, you can probably speak to this from when you research. Like that, I feel like, is a step that maybe some parents don't take. It's an extra step, right? Yeah. And it's asking for confrontation. That's hard. But that is, you know, one of the most important things to teach children to do 
if they are going to go out into the world and, you know, fight for equality for their own and for that of other people. You're listening to With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. If you follow me on Instagram, you know I am actually a little bit of a camera hound in addition to tweeting all the time. And you may also know that I took a ton of pictures this last year during the election. I was, you know, fortunate enough to have a front seat at one of the most consequential elections of my generation, perhaps American history. And I took a bunch of pictures and they've just sort of sat there on Instagram until now. I have been using FrameBridge. FrameBridge does online framing, you know, direct from Instagram if you want to. They have a frame for every style from clean and classic to something more eclectic. I've been using clean and classic myself. They use premium real wood moldings and acid-free matte boards and foam boards, and their acrylic glazing will never shatter, and it protects your piece from harmful UV rays. And they'll consult with you if you want, or you can just do it all yourself. They actually also consult with gallery walls. If you're trying to do one of those, like all over Pinterest, they have them. I'm thinking about that, but we don't have a lot of wall space in the house. So I'm kind of doing things one at a time. And you can do it that way at FrameBridge. The expert team at FrameBridge will custom frame your item in days, not weeks or months, and then deliver your finished piece directly to your door, ready to hang. And it's easy to use, like I said. Go to framebridge.com, choose the frame, or let the designers help you. Upload your photo from your computer or, like I said, directly from Instagram, and review your photo online in the frame you choose. If you can't upload your photo or art, you can also mail it in for free. And I'm actually thinking of sending in some uh, cross-stitches I've done. If that happens, I will let you guys know how it turns out. I'm pretty confident it'll be cool, but I will let you know. Instead of the hundreds you'd pay at a framing store, their prices start at $39 and all shipping is free. Plus, my listeners get an additional 15% off their first order at FrameBridge when you use code FRIENDS. Get started framing your photos or art. Perhaps some pictures of kitties or puppies. Um, I've certainly been needing those lately. Go to framebridge.com and use promo code FRIENDS. You'll save an additional 15% off your first order. Framebridge.com. Promo code FRIENDS. Again, that's framebridge.com. Promo code FRIENDS. The other thing I remember, and I know you remember this because you've talked about it, but it was in high school, you told me to keep track of math class um, when who, te- who my teacher called on. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think you had just read some study about women not being treated at, um, fairly in math classes. Yes. And you were concerned because <laughs> everyone, spoiler alert, my dad still hasn't given up hope that I'll become a mathematician. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you were like maybe concerned that I would like lose my enthusiasm for math. But like, yeah, and you never said the word feminist to me, right? Like, no, I, I, I didn't. But those two things are like the specific examples I can think of of, being, of becoming aware, like there is a thing in the world that's injustice. And not only does it exist, it exists in these systematic ways, and it's part of my responsibility as a human being to say something about it. Yeah. So, and I also knew you're a feminist because you did call me once. Um, well, you you voted for Shirley Chisholm. That's actually, I think that right there is on your feminist resume. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> 
<laughs> and that's like that's old school. Like I would tell my I tell my woke friends about you voting for Shirley Chisholm and they're pretty impressed. Um and then also um uh very I thought this was really wonderful, but more recently, uh not only did you volunteer for Wendy Davis, but when Jill Abramson was fired from the New York Times, like you were very concerned about your own New York Times subscription, which I find <laughs> I found very sweet. Um, but, uh, Claire, don't worry. I told him to keep subscribing. That was, uh, we, we totally, we decided that it was bet for the larger good to stay a subscriber to the times. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but Claire, so you, you're an interested party in this. You're raising boys. Um, what are you seeing in your own household? Um, like, what are you trying to do? So it's really, I mean, I was terrified when I found out I was having boys and I I would have girls and, you know, of course I'd have girls and then I was having boys and, and, you know, people said to me, oh, I'm, you know, I know you wanted someone to get your nails done with, go shopping with. I'm like, no, that's not it. It's that I wanted to raise a feminist. And then very, very quickly, it became clear to me that, um, that raising feminist boys right now is just as important and maybe even more important. You know, I wanted to be able to show girls that they could be anything they wanted to be. Um, but I think, you know, for the work we're talking about equality, um, that doing it with boys is even more important. And it's hard to know how, you know, when you're in thick of parenting, it's like sort of minute by minute battles. And I have no idea if my overarching, um, goals are succeeding. I think you just kind of have to hope I'm finding parenting to be not something you can, you you can totally plan for, but you know, my oldest is five and he, his favorite color is pink and always has been, and he loves rainbows and making friendship bracelets and he has long hair and he wants to keep it that way. And he likes to paint his nails and he knows he's a boy and he has friends who are boys and he talks about, you know, how he's a boy and, and, and he, that all fits with, with what, um, his conception of, of being a boy and being whoever you want to be is. And I think, you know, if he can carry that confidence into elementary school, that that will be wonderful. And, and I want to be clear, I'm not saying we need to raise boys to be girls. I'm not saying all boys should have feminine pursuits. My argument in this piece was boys should be able to pursue what they're passionate about. And, um, you know, my oldest boy just doesn't happen to be passionate about ball sports. He happens to be passionate about art and rainbows. And, you know, I'm, to me, that's wonderful and that's fine because it means he's pursuing his passions. Um, I'm not saying everyone should say that boys should, favorite colors should be pink. I'm just saying that if it is, um, that's okay. And, you know, I'm glad that he's confident enough to be that way. I think part of it has to do with his preschool. It's funny because, you know, they have a thing like where you can wear whatever you want as long as you can get yourself in and out of it. And as long as, you know, it keeps you at the right temperature. And <laughs> the other day they were talking about dresses or at home we were talking about um it, it came up about a boy wearing a dress I think they had there was a book um I don't remember what it's called about a boy who wears a dress and he said um yeah I, I don't wear dresses because I don't choose to but you know boys can wear dresses I just don't choose to and I'm like you know that's awesome that's exactly right um dad do you have any advice from your personal experience for Claire about raising her boys I think she's doing the right thing. <clears throat> I admire that. I, I think um, what she says just sounds exactly right to me. Um, so I, I, I back her 100%. And you know what? Like, that's actually probably the most powerful thing you ever said to me, too. <laughs> you back me 100%. And I think that's, that's, that's what every child who wants to be 
who wants to work for justice in the world, like needs to know, right? Like whatever you do, like we back you 100%. Yeah. So that's a good note to end on. Thank you both. Dad, I love you. I love you too. It's a pleasure to be on with you. I appreciate your calling me. I love you too. All right. Happy Father's Day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's it for the show. Thank you for making it to the end. As usual, if you enjoyed it, please head to iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcasts and write a review or leave a rating, both if you can. Uh, A rating is great. Reviews are even better. If you are interested in corresponding with any of the people on the show, Anil, of course, is on Twitter. He is at Anil Dash, at A-N-I-L-D-A-S-H. Claire Kane Miller is at Claire C-M, that's C-L-A-I-R-E-C-M. My dad is also on Twitter. He is at Sam Cox. He tweets a lot about actuarial science, Texas Christian University football, and liberal politics. So if that is some mixture of things that you like, you will enjoy his Twitter feed. And of course, you should follow the show. We are at crooked underscore friends. If you have something to say that does not fit into 140 characters, please email us at withfriendslikepod at gmail.com. Again, that's withfriendslikepod at gmail.com. We are also always looking for good questions and experiences to share with our listeners. So send those if you have them. Really feedback of any kind. And I say that knowing not all feedback is good. But that's okay, because we don't always get things right the first time, right? I said I was going to say something about language. So here is what I want to say. Words matter. And violent rhetoric matters. It's easy, if you're a person on the left, to resent the way that people on the right are at the moment pointing fingers and shouting and dredging up old clips to show that violent rhetoric exists on our side too. But here's the thing. If we want conservatives to learn to respect people's chosen pronouns and identities, I think we have to take responsibility when our rhetoric about politics in general gets out of hand. So as uncomfortable as it is, I'm happy to admit that, you know what, maybe I've gotten carried away too. Maybe some of our leadership has gotten carried away. Of course, Kathy Griffin got carried away. And I denounce those things and I apologize for the times that I've done it. And what I hope is that our friends on the right will take a look at themselves, perhaps even a look at their president. Because yeah, You're right. Words matter. The president's words probably matter a lot. And speaking of the tragedy that happened in Alexandria, I want to leave you with two more words. Crystal Griner. Crystal Griner was one of the two Capitol Hill police officers that were injured along with Steve Scalise and a lobbyist and an aide. She is a black, married, lesbian, a former basketball star, who, when the bullets started coming, ran towards them. She was visited in the hospital by her wife, who was there when the president and his wife came by, 
sort of wish I'd been a fly on the wall in that room. But you know what? I bet Crystal Griner's wife was gracious as fuck. Probably more gracious than I would be. And Crystal Griner, of course, is the real hero here. Her and David Bailey, another person of color who ran towards the bullets and not away from them. Crystal Griner saved the lives of a bunch of old white Republican dudes. And this is not to say that she shouldn't have or that they don't deserve saving. It is to say that she didn't give a fuck about their identities or their politics or who they were married to or what they did in their private lives when she ran towards those bullets. She is sworn to protect everyone, to serve everyone, no matter who they love or what they look like. I think that's something those congressmen could learn from her. I think that's something those congressmen might think about. You guys have a good week. See you next Friday. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One. Because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. <laughs> 